Thanks for being with us today. Well, it is Father's Day, as you likely know. So we're going to take a look now at how the dynamics have changed when it comes to families, when it comes to parents being involved in different aspects of raising kids, of being part of the family. And Nikki Martin is the program head of early childhood studies at the University of Guelph Humber and joins us on the line now. Nikki, thank you so much for being with us. Hi. Uh, Looking at some new research uh, that looks at uh, parents, uh, in particular dads, uh, who are happy, who are healthy. And what does it tell us about uh, fathers and their involvement uh, in the families? What we're finding is that 90% of dads' greatest joys are parenting, are being, are having children and being involved in their children's lives. And I think when we think back on, you know, years ago, that we would be surprised by that. But young fathers today, fathers that are growing up, have really a lot of a lot of um, a lot of energy and, and really wanting to be part of their children's lives and valuing that. And I think it has great effects for our children, our co-parents, our society. And what do you think led to the shift of, uh, and, and I mean, it wasn't that long ago when that probably wasn't the norm or that wasn't to what we were hearing from people. No, you're absolutely right. It wasn't that long ago. I think probably we can remember that time ourselves. And um, and I think that some of the shift is one's own understanding relationships with your own father or parents as you grow up. And I think that, you know, over time, these little shifts tend to take hold. And I think we found ourselves in a place where, you know, our our younger generations are really they enjoyed the relationships with their own father and you know, in those little bits, and they're taking it a little bit further. And it'll be exciting to see how that shift changes over time. As as I'm anticipating, we're starting to see more dads staying at home, and the moms working uh, in in uh, in those kind of traditional relationships. And, uh, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens in future generations. And we're also seeing, or it looks like we're seeing uh, more fathers take advantage of parental leave and, uh, and programs where they're, they're able to stay home more or take Take time off work when babies are born. Yeah, this is a really exciting. This is a really exciting shift, actually, and really in the in the news right now. With in all of Canada, we're only seeing about thirty percent of dads taking parental leave, partly because in most of Canada it's shared. So that means that the mother would have to, or the other parent, the other co-parent would have to take some time off or go back early. So in Quebec. They uh, instituted a five-week father leave. And what's fascinating about this is 85.8% of dads took this leave, took this five-week leave that is not shared. This is like, this will make a huge difference theoretically with uh, their involvement because we know ourselves, the more you're involved with the routines and the comfort and the crying and all of those parts of being a parent, the more comfortable you are over time, the more you know your child. So it's really interesting in Quebec, has, they've pushed through and, and week uh, leave, um, and they've found a huge success rate. So hopefully the rest of the Canada keeps up. And do you think, too, that's interesting numbers uh, with fathers taking uh, taking part in that leave? Uh, because one of the issues has been often for women uh, that uh, taking a maternity leave, taking a leave from work puts you at a disadvantage as far as you're out of the workforce. You then have to get back in or perhaps you choose not to. Uh, do you think yes. men look at that, have those same barriers? Well, what's interesting is the Denmark, where it has a more egalitarian relationship. Uh, 
a relationship or a society that actually shows that even when the fathers take it off, they don't have they don't have the same impact as women seem to. There's this uh, something we call it. It seems to affect women far more. And what's interesting is is the literature showing that women never can catch up financially. That there's always a penalty on women, regardless of the amount of time they take off. This and it's significant. It's like in Canada, we are paid, women are paid 75 cents on the dollar for men, which is significant. And once they have one child, they never, ever will catch up on that. That's what the data is showing in Stats Canada. And that's actually incredibly concerning. So we really do need to work towards equality for all, for for dads to be able to stay home if they want, for moms to be able to stay home or go to work if they want, whatever that looks like, but there has to be equality and equity um, for all. I think uh, people would definitely agree with that. Uh, we just had uh, in uh, in Ottawa, MPs now get uh, can get a year of fully paid parental leave uh, from, from their positions, which on the surface seems great, but some people have been taking issue with that, saying, wait a minute, a fully, fully paid, no penalty sounds wonderful, uh, but if, you know, regular Canadians, working Canadians take time off, you do get paid leave, but it's, it's like going on uh, employment insurance. It's not, most people yeah. wouldn't get their full salary, and like you said, you get into this financial place that it's very yeah. difficult to come back from. It is very difficult to come back from. And it's important that it's great that the government is looking towards um, that as a model. And I think that that does need to be a model. And we need to look towards that across Canada and all disciplines. Because if we're going to be a society that values humans, we need to value our children. We need to value parenting. Because those kids and the experiences they have when they're little, when they're babies and young children, affect them their entire lives, and they will grow up to be adults. And we know that this has massive, and it also affects, it has massive effects on our society. And it also, uh, for every dollar we invest in early learning, we get $1.5 to $3 back. And it's even more when we're looking at our low socioeconomic status uh, families. So this is a massive, this, this is massive for us economically, but also socially. And what about the, the issue of, of early child care and, and such? I mean, it's often in the news yeah. about not only is it expensive, yeah. but it's very difficult yeah. to access in many places. So do we, yeah. do we, does the study look at that or does the research look at that and the, the importance of having that available? Yeah, and this is, again, where we're going to look uh, across Canada. And, you know, there's been talk for a number of years, and I know the government, the Canadian government is looking at it again, is universal child care. With the idea that we can offer a quality early learning environments for children across all of Canada. This will allow for reduced rates for parents. It will allow, allow for uh, consistent quality care, which is really important for how our children grow up. Um, some families don't need the don't need the same requirement, but it is we need to be able to offer everybody the same environment, uh, same opportunities, uh, regardless of their socioeconomic status or what the parents can afford. Uh, this also we know infant care costs at least in Toronto, can cost $2,000 a month. This is a massive uh, difficulty for parents and forces some parents to have to stay home or make decisions that, uh, especially when they have more than one child, make decisions based on who earns the least amount of money versus uh, to stay home with their children because they can't afford care. And quality early learning uh, environments actually offer our, our children really great opportunities to grow and learn. 
And do you think people do enough of, of thinking about that beforehand in that if, if you choose to have kids and it is a, a choice yeah. to have them, yeah. uh, do people think about that, uh, about the early childhood education, about the, the difference between a child being in a, in, a, in a care facility rather than a parent being at home and, what, and the differences in, in how that kind of shapes the child? You know, that's a, it, it's a great question, and I don't think people do think about it. Um, it is, it's a regulated profession in a lot, of, uh, a lot of Canada, and it's incredibly valued, but it is still thought of. We still are fighting a good fight to be able to be seen as, as professionals. People have a sense of children. I was fine when I was a kid, um, and so and my, ch- my children will be fine, but we can do better than that. We can offer. There's so much research and so much passion in the early or learning and care environments that we can offer children really amazing, and parents, amazing experiences on how to parent better and how to provide great experiences for children for the best of their success. And I guess that's one of the questions, too, and parents often grapple with that. And how do you do everything? How do you keep working? How do you keep being a provider? How do you be a great parent? It's kind of like being in three different places at the same time. (sighs) It's incredibly difficult. That's partly why women, once they have parent, or once they become parents, are paid less, because the employers feel like they can't do everything. They have to leave for uh, when their child is sick or for a doctor's appointment. That is not necessarily the case. It is not a woman's role, but that is often the still the impression that we have, still this what we're leaving, what we're living with. And you're absolutely right. It is incredible. Any parent out there knows how difficult it is to juggle that balance of being a great parent. But then does being a great parent mean that you're home all the time? Or does it mean quality when you are home and you're available? That means maybe not having your cell phone on or not being answering email. But then how do you juggle that? So it is not an easy time right now to be a parent. And that is what... um, in part what early learning and care or early childhood educators can help parents with is understanding how uh, the child and their development and what they can what they can do at home to have fun and play and take some of the edge off. You mentioned a couple of different countries. Are there other countries that you would say are the example or that are getting it right? Oh, certainly the Scandinavian countries really, they value children. I mean, this is stuff we've known for a long time. Denmark and Sweden and Finland have, you know, their education and their, uh, for children, their children's education and their uh, belief in parenting and parental leave and paternal leave is um, really revolutionary. And I think um, when you go there, you actually see early childhood educators revered as uh, as experts, and you see uh, men as early childhood educators. So the value of offering a male perspective with infants and, ch- and young children is important in those communities. And I think that there is, I think that's important partly because there is a difference between a woman's uh, way of nurturing and a man's way of nurturing. And I think both are incredibly valuable for our children. All right. Uh, Interesting research, uh, definitely. Nikki, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning to talk about this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. All right, time to uh, talk about ride sharing, something we still don't have in BC, but we did get a bit more information this past week on what the requirements will be, at least one big requirement. And it has some people questioning if we're ever going to have ride sharing here in BC, similar to what we see in cities right around the world. Uh, let's bring in Ian Tostenson. He is the president of Ride Sharing for BC Now. Ian, thanks so much for being with us. 
Hey, Jill. Good morning. How you doing? Uh, great. How are you? I feel every time I talk to you, I'm just like, feel so bad that just, this hasn't happened. And I feel so responsible that we're not there yet. But we're inching forward. Inching, exactly. I mean, you do, I think you get the prize for being optimistic. Every time we talk, it's it's right around the corner, but then something happens and it's still not here. Yeah, and I, you know, it's, you know, and it defies logic unless you sort of become a, a student of the politics of this. Um we um, there's about 70 plus taxi owners in the province that control all the taxi licenses. And I think, you know, from a very sort of simple perspective, uh, that's where the government's really concerned about those taxi owners, not so much the drivers, but the owners and um, the perception of them allowing ride share. So it seems that every time we think we're almost across the last hurdle, there's something else, as you say. So now the issue is uh, a class four or a class five license which means that um, class four license for those listening requires a whole bunch of different steps to get that designation. So I tried to um, look at what it'd be like to get a class four license. And it's, you know, it probably takes honestly by time. Uh, well, they recommend the driving school that you take driving school uh, lessons to make sure you pass the exam uh, because there's quite a high failure rate. So by the time you go through that process, it's probably almost six to eight weeks and close to $900. And for a lot of people that are the target of drivers for ride sharing in the world, uh, that's just, that's just not going to work for them. So that's, that's the, the major concern. And we heard that from the transportation minister from Claire Trevena, who said that she's bringing this in or, or there is going to be this requirement for a commercial class four license because it provides a safer atmosphere for yeah. people who will be involved with this. What do you say to that when we have so many other jurisdictions where it's not required? I don't buy it. Uh, I really don't buy it. And the reason I don't buy it is, we know we work closely with Lyft and Uber, and I know their standards. I know what they uh, uh, and make sure that all the standards and safety standards that their drivers have. Because if you look at it, um, that's the business that they're in is to move people safely. And so I argue that their standards are probably even higher than a Class Four and more practical than a Class Four license. Um, and so I, it, it, it upsets me that the concern for the minister sort of overlooks the power of private industry to be able to deliver that. I know that both those companies, if they needed to layer on another level of, you know, because one of the things with a commercial license is you do a walk around of your car, right? So before you drive your car, you walk around and make sure it's a safety check. So about five taxi guys that I've asked, do you do this? They kind of laughed at me like, seriously? <laughs> so, um, but Uber and Lyft could build that in. If the minister would sit down with them and say, these are the things I want to be safe, what things do you have, and let's build this in BC, we suggested a Class 5 license. So Class 5 license would, allows people that have a safe driving record, and that's really the best indicator, and two years of experience um, to be able to apply to become a driver. And that's how you populate the system quickly to handle the demand that we need. But what class four is going to do is going to choke the system. And I think you're going to see fewer people wanting to become a driver. Um, one of the stats in Alberta is came out last week is that there's fewer women drivers in Alberta because they have a class four requirement because it's harder to get. And so where you see in other jurisdictions, you see close to 
you know, high 40% of drivers that are women, which is awesome because that's not typical in the taxi industry. And you see a lot of students. So when you sort of connect affordability and opportunity and the ability to make uh, a couple of guys I met in Phoenix recently, a couple of thousand bucks a month extra, uh, it's really sad that the minister keeps talking about safety when it's not safety at all because we can build it in, we can do that. It's really, I think, she's slowing it down again. And she's got everybody in thinking, oh, yeah, safety, these places are, uns- uh, these companies are unsafe, and they're not. Well, no, and, and really, if you take it, if, if it's all about safety and the minister is so concerned about people with passengers being safe drivers, then they would require class four for anybody that drives a carpool van, for anybody that drives volunteer for, say, the cancer program, anybody that has people as passengers in their vehicle. So it, it's not about safety. No, and. We, we said this class five, we said, Minister, why don't you, you know, you made a BC solution. Why don't you do a class five and make everybody do it? Everybody is driving, for, as you say, for, you know, school programs and kids and soccer programs and stuff. And we, and we could do an online exam uh, similar to what we do in the restaurant industry where you have to take an online uh, exam to serve alcohol. And we can create the awareness. And we're all, we're all about that. We want that to happen. But she's insistent. And I don't. I don't have the confidence that ICBC is going to deliver. The minister said, well, you know, they'll be able to uh, schedule all these people taking the driver's exam. Uh, well, when I phoned ICBC, I was in hold for 30 minutes to try to book an exam for a class four. So um, it's not going to be as simple as you say. So I think we need to keep the pressure on the minister to uh, to find another solution. Um, and she's a wonderful person, and, and I think she's really excited about about this, but I think the optics are they want to be able to look the taxi industry straight in the eye and say, well, we tried. You know, we really tried, but, you know, it is what it is. And I think that's really, at the end of this, what this is all about. Well, and doesn't it seem a little bit odd that the committee that actually was looking at ride-sharing made all of the recommendations, the recommendation from that committee was that drivers only needed Class 5. They were suggesting that you don't need a Class 4, and then they've gone ahead and made this decision. Yeah, that's really strange, too, to sort of pick that out because there's sort of, you know, so the idea on the all-party committee recommendations was don't restrict the number of drivers, don't restrict where they can operate. So that means we can have cross-municipality driving. Don't restrict the fares. That's the supply and demand consumer-driven thing. And don't require class. It's not necessary to have a class four. It's redundant. And then she picks that out and says, oh, no, it's going to be unsafe if we don't have this. And she goes on and on and on. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, which leads you down the path of the politics of the issue. Uh, any idea? Do you have confidence in that? Well, I mean, we heard from Lyft saying that uh, this, is, this is going to be, this is a bad thing. Lyft obviously is not happy with this. So what are your thoughts on when we might actually see or are we going to see ride sharing here? <laughs> well, I think we will, but we you know whether we will, sure. But are we going to be able to populate the system as quickly as the demand for the system exists? And, and that's that whole thing that the premier came up the other day and said, well, yeah, we, or I think as, as Minister Eby said, well, we should start applying for the Class 4 licenses and easier said than done. I believe it'll be in place the, to accept the – what we don't okay. – so in, in the fall, they said they're going to start to accept the applications to be, uh, for ride-sharing companies to be licensed. So the question there is how long will that take? Uh, both the minister and the premier said, by Christmas, you will be in a rideshare vehicle. So, yeah, I, we're going to get we're going to get something, whether it's a robust system that needs 
to reflect uh, the demand and needs of where we're at right now in, in British Columbia? I maybe don't think so because of the Class 4 issue. So we're going to keep working with the minister, and you know, maybe there's maybe some the middle ground here. I hope there is. But irrespective, it is in, uh, there is a Class 4 license in Alberta. Um, it, you know, it, it, it is operating in Alberta. Lyft isn't operating in Alberta, but Uber is. So it is possible to get the system up and running with it. So it's not entirely impossible. But with the change in government in Alberta, interesting, it looks like they're going to just get rid of the class four requirement and just go back to class five, like all the rest of the provinces in British Columbia or in Canada. All right. Well, we will uh, continue watching this. Ian, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Appreciate it. Well, if you were born between the years 1981 and 1996, you are considered a millennial. My guess is there aren't a ton of millennials listening right now, but there are probably a lot of uh, millennials' parents who are out there. Do millennials get a bad rap? Well, let's talk about that with Daniel Fontaine. He's a civic affairs columnist with the ORCA, and he has written about this. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. It does sometimes, even saying millennial, sometimes people will have that bit of uh, connotation in the word that uh, that uh, is almost seems a little judgy. Oh, yeah, no, there's a lot of judgment. Uh, I can attest to that. I've been to uh, many meetings and and uh, attended conferences and heard kind of the, the snide remarks. You kind of see people uh, make comments, oh, those millennials, this and that. It's definitely very pervasive, I think, within, <clears throat> excuse me, within our general kind of work culture. And uh, it, it really inspired me, some of those comments um, inspired me to write the column uh, in the ORCA about the fact that I think that the millennials as a generation themselves are, are getting a bad rap. And that comes a lot from my own personal experience, but personal experience from some of my work colleagues as well when we started talking about this. And they all kind of said, yeah, it's kind of weird. There's this pervasive kind of narrative out there about millennials, but all the millennials we've worked with have been fantastic. <laughs> so, so, where so, do you, where do you think it comes from that they're getting this? They they <clears throat> deemed that they're you know kind of coasting and not mm-hmm. hard workers. And where does that come from? Well, I think if I were to theorize, there's probably a couple of things. First of all, I I, I called in my column. I said there's something called three Gs, which is the gen, uh, general generational griping. So we tend to always look at a generation behind us um, saying, look, this younger generation is not as hardworking. I mean, I remember my parents telling me how they had to trudge to school and, you know, uh, you know, knee deep snow. They didn't have enough money for clothes. I mean, we've always had that kind of generational piece. But I think what's a little bit different with millennials is with technology and, and being in the digital age and how they're very, uh, they embrace the digital uh, culture. You see them with their smartphones all the time. They're, they're online, they're hooked in. That's just, I think, has, has kind of added to kind of a, a belief that they're, they're not perhaps as hardworking. But, you know, the millennials I've worked with, I mean, they've taken that technology and they have embraced it in a way that I couldn't even dream of. Um, and I, in fact, I was just up at Whistler at a conference and, and uh, we had a number of our team up there. And I tell you, they, they blew me away by just the, the innovation and the way they used technology and the way they were able to... Uh, they worked harder than any of us that were over 50, I can tell you that. They definitely uh, put in a lot of time. Interesting. And do you think it's that things have changed as far as home ownership, as far as you don't go work for the same company for 30 years and, mm-hmm. and know your life trajectory, and there's almost a bit of bitterness looking, looking at, at younger people who are making choices and saying, I don't want to do that, I'm going to do this instead? I must say, I, I do envy them in many respects. Um, I look at, you know, when I grew up, it was like, 
get your nine to five job. Uh, if you can get a government job, get a good pension. I mean, all those types of things we grew up with. My parents did the same thing. We grew up with living in this kind of conform conformed kind of a, a lifestyle. They've blown this away. Millennials are, I mean, they, they have in, in many respects, and I don't want to completely generalize, but they, they don't enjoy the nine to five. They, they tend to work kind of around that. They, they also um, want their work to kind of connect to a bigger social cause or something bigger than the office. They really uh, not only kind of uh, want communication, they need it as part of their, they're kind of wired for it. So, you know, we, we were, we've kind of changed it. Even in my day job, we've kind of changed the, how many times we've had staff meetings. The millennials have come back and said, no, we, we want more. We want to be able to have that communication. So they're very different, um, but that difference doesn't mean that they're less hardworking and it doesn't mean that they necessarily deserve the, the, the rap that they're getting in terms of them being, you know, I've heard people say they're lazy, they're not as hardworking, et cetera. That has definitely not been my experience. And I, I know one of my vice presidents kind of inspired this column because she said to me, you know, I got to write a column one day. She said, I just to, to write about the fact that we have such great millennials. And I, so I teased her. I said, well, I just went one step further and actually wrote it and put it on paper. So, <laughs> and, and I guess it comes down to the fact you can't uh, generalize any uh, generation. No. It's not as though any particular generation X, Y, Z uh, is th- that they're all, everybody in that generation has the same traits and has the same, there, there are lazy people in every generation. There are hard workers in every generation. Absolutely. And if anything from my column, I hope people take away from, from the column is exactly that. I think that to generalize and to say that a whole cohort of people who were born between certain years are somehow all falling into this trait is just, first of all, it's wrong. Uh, but secondly, it's just, it's improper and it just does not reflect um, reality in terms of the workplace. And I said in my column that, you know, because I've heard HR managers and I've heard other people say, oh, I, I don't want to have to hire millennials, etc. Look, if you don't hire millennials, you're going to go the way of the fax machine or, you know, blockbuster video. Like you need to bring in millennials into the workforce and you have no choice. I mean, we're the age forces, we're all getting older and we're, we're going to be retiring and we, that's a whole generation of people that need to come in the workforce. So, you know, I think that rather than fight it and rather than kind of buy into that narrative, embrace it, find a way to work it within it in your workplace. And I think you're going to benefit as a result of it. And I guess, too, we get this or we come to this from a place of with social media and with people sharing so much information, we tend to get the the bad stories. Mm-hmm. I remember a small business owner posted a text exchange. She was waiting for a millennial to come in for a job interview. The person mm-hmm. didn't show up and she texted, you know, hey, where are you? I'm waiting for you. And the text back was, oh, sorry, I got another job. Never mind. Mm-hmm. And not that courtesy of canceling the interview or thinking that it's okay just to not show up. And I'm sure that happens in other generations too, but it seems that we fixate on the fact that, that uh, we generalize and say that it seems that millennials think that type of behavior is okay. Well, Jill, I can tell you that that very example that I've done a lot of hiring over the years, um, but I can say that that very example has happened regardless of generation just that now with social media, we're reading about it. We're reading we're, we're, people are tweeting about it. They're posting it on Instagram and Facebook. We're just hearing about it more. And it just happens that the generation, that millennial generation is in that first wave of where these things happen. It's communicated and the whole world hears about it. This kind of stuff has been happening for, for generations. We just never posted it online before. So I think that's one of the differences. And that's one of the reasons why they get a, a bum rap is because we're reading and seeing about them as a generation like we've never done for any generation before. 
Uh, exactly. And, and I suppose, too, we could be looking at uh, the helicopter parents of the millennials or the parents of, of millennials. I mean, they didn't just come out of nowhere. There is, If there is this group that's got this entitlement or that's got this uh, lack of work ethic, that had to have come from somewhere. Well, absolutely. And I would I dispute the fact that they are. Uh, they do have a poor work ethic. I, I think they have a different work ethic. And I think it's different than than those in my generation and my my parents and grandparents. It's very different. It's not the same. And it's but it doesn't make it worse. It actually they're very adaptable. I mean, I find that sometimes I have a, a struggle adapting to the change. I mean, I try my best. Uh, but this generation of millennials, they seem to not only are able to do it, they embrace it. They welcome it. They're like, yeah, this is what the new norm is. And so I think rather than fight it, bring them in and have them help your organization adapt. And I think you're going to benefit as a result. All right. Well, it's a very uh, interesting read. And I'm sure a lot of millennials are appreciative that <laughs> you've put that out there. Uh, Daniel, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Joe. All right, you probably heard the announcement this past week. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying that in Canada, single-use plastics will be banned starting in 2021. Now, we don't have the actual list of items, but pretty safe to assume it's going to include things like plastic bags, uh, takeaway containers, and straws. We talk a lot about plastic straws, but will this actually clean up the oceans as we are led to believe it will? My next guest says it's probably not going to make a big difference. Uh, Tristan Hopper is a National Post contributor and joins us on the line now. Tristan, so great to have you back on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, we've talked about straws before and mm-hmm. uh, kind of the, the ideology that goes with the straw ban. Uh, your response to this idea, single-use plastics, gone by 2021. Uh, yeah, so it would be one thing if Trudeau came out and said, hey, we're using too many plastics, and hey, I crunched the numbers, and I had this new study, and we found out that if we replace it with alternatives, uh, we'll reduce you know, this impact on the environment and this uh, out of the waste stream. But he didn't do that. There's almost no science and actually some anti-science behind this proposal. Instead, he, said, he came out and said, hey, uh, you know, the oceans are choked with plastic, so Canada is going to deal with that by banning single-use plastics. Well, there's a big major problem with this, and it's strange that people aren't mentioning it more. Uh, virtually all of the plastic in the ocean is not coming from Canada. And this isn't one of those things where it's like, oh, we're a small country, you know, globally our contribution is not high. Um, Canada is actually quite good at keeping plastic out of the ocean. It's because we have um, a very developed waste management system. So everybody in your listening audience, try and remember the last time you used a plastic fork or a plastic straw. When you were done with it, did you throw it in a, a coastline? Did you leave it on a beach? Did you throw it on a river? Did you find the nearest sea otter and try and make the sea otter eat it? No, you probably put it in a bin, and then a municipal worker picked it up and then took it to a well-managed dump, and then it was either recycled, turned into electricity, or put under several feet of clay. So we don't really have a problem uh, with our plastics ending up in the ocean, and we ask ocean scientists, where the plastic is coming from. They will tell you, and there is plenty of research to back this up, 95% of it, more than 95% of it, is coming from South Asia and Africa. And the reason is quite simple. They don't have dumps in those countries. Um, A lot of them, uh, they're developing countries. uh, So the way you take out the garbage is you put it on a beach and wait for the tide to come in. So when it comes to actually addressing um, uh, plastic waste, um, it's dump development in the developing world, not banning single-use plastics in Canada. So we're essentially embarking on 
this major endeavor that is going to cost billions of dollars, all of which would be better spent on something that would actually fix the problem. And do you think the reason for that is in this, people can feel better in Canada saying, look at what we're doing. We are the example, even though we already are. But it's not as easy to go and tell other countries, hey, you should be doing what we're doing. You should have better waste management. Oh, yeah, this is absolutely uh, just uh, this policy is all about feeling good rather than science, which is quite disappointing. So one good example of, you know, just how slapped together this proposal is in the tweet announcing this. Trudeau said Canadians use 57 million straws per day. This has to end. That figure, which may sound high because there are only 35 million Canadians, so that that means we're somehow using 1.6 straws per day. Um, I don't think that really, almost anyone, I don't think anybody in your listening audience has that kind of straw consumption. So that figure is based on, it was an American nine-year-old named Milo Kress um, a few years ago, he was doing a project about American straw consumption, and he just called a few plastic manufacturers, asked them generally how many straws they uh, produce, and then put a, a ballpark estimate that Americans were going through 500 million straws per year. And then activists in Canada said, well, if the Americans are using 500 million, we'll just adjust that for our population. So it's probably 57 million here in Canada. So that's an incredibly uh, sketchy figure. You have a nine-year-old sort of ballparking a figure on straws, and then we're just adjusting it for the Canadian market. So it's, it's wildly incorrect. You don't base policy on something that's this flimsy. And uh, when actual scientists have looked at straw consumption, it's somewhere like one-third. So I think that's a pretty good indication uh, that, yeah, this isn't Trudeau going up to ocean scientists and saying, how can we best help? Uh, this is him just doing something that's going to seem like he's helping the environment, and because anybody who opposes it, of hating the environment and wanting whales to choke in plastic. <laughs> which, which is unfortunate because I think we all agree, nobody wants the oceans to be filled with plastic. But again, if we're bringing in policy, like you said, that's not based on science, that's not going to make any difference, what's the point? Uh, you make an excellent point in uh, the piece uh, in the, the uh, National Post as well uh, about what's actually causing a lot of problems. And, and in addition to the countries that are throwing plastic literally into the oceans, a lot of it is nets and other issues. Oh, yeah, this is the number one um, plastic problem in the oceans, and it never gets brought up. I mean, if you ask the average Canadian on the street, they'd probably be like, well, yeah, it's it's all straws. It's these straws killing everyone. When it comes to plastic debris, actually, straws are one of the least dangerous because the thing that kills marine animals is entanglement. You can't really get entangled in a straw. Um, So it's ghost gear, uh, which is nets. They fall off a ship. Uh, these are fisheries that just aren't taking care of their equipment. They're not watching it. So a thin net falls off a boat. It's made out of plastic. It roams the world, killing marine wildlife, thousands upon thousands of whales, fish, whatever, until it eventually degrades and falls into the ocean, uh, and, uh, falls towards the bottom of the ocean. So yeah, ghost gear, um, if you're looking at just the, num- the problem you should be addressing to save marine life because of plastic, ghost gear should be at the top of your priority list. And then banning straws at Canadian A&Ws in the prairies should be, I don't know, like 400 on the list. And go- this would actually be something that Canada would do quite well. We would do two of the- both of the things quite well. We're very good at keeping wa- uh, at dump management. Um, and, I mean, you can do no better than sending a team of Canadian engineers to the developing world to set up all these dumps, slap a big Canadian flag on it. The world loves us, and we're stopping whales from choking. 
And we also have a very long fishery culture. We have three coasts in this country. So when it comes to fisheries management, uh, provenance of fisheries and, you know, checking buyback programs for, for fishing gear, um, uh, you know, various campaigns to get rid of ghost gear, those are both problems in which Canada would actually do quite well. But instead of doing that, we're going to do something that accomplishes nothing. And here's the worst part. We're going to feel like we've accomplished something. The whole country is going to let out a sigh of relief and say, well, we banned the plastics. Why aren't the rest of you getting on board with this? And uh, again, the health of the oceans is just getting worse and worse and worse uh, while we're doing this. Uh, are you concerned we don't know what's going to be on this list? And you mentioned this as well. I mean, it could be saran wrap. It could be so many things that, again, are not the problem because we're not throwing them into the ocean. And that could cause bigger problems. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, people are saying, well, how could it hurt? It could hurt in all kinds of ways. I mean, you know, know your history. There's all kinds of well-meaning environmental proposals that uh, have been pitched on similar lines, like how could it hurt? Getting rid of plastic isn't a problem. But these things don't happen in a vacuum. Um, so that's why you have to sort of, you know, be more measured and more scientific about these things. So if we get rid of the plastic, is it just going to drive people towards an alternative that's even worse? Uh, you know, like uh, we're getting rid of plastic straws, now we're going to paper straws. I mean, paper straws are made out of wood. So um, is the environmental impact of cutting down a bunch of forests to make uh, make straws, does that counteract uh, the environmental benefit of not using all this plastic? So a great example, um, recently we all remember when Starbucks banned straws, and we were all saying, oh, Starbucks, they're these environmental stewards, good for them, yay, Starbucks. So they got rid of straws, and again, um, I don't think any of them were ending up in the ocean because Starbucks, um, it, they're, you know, they're in Seattle, they're in Portland, they're in Vancouver, um, these are places with excellent waste management. So anyway, they got rid of straws, and then they replaced it with that chippy cup, um, something that uses actually way more plastic than the straws. So you have this applauded environmental initiative that is actually consuming more plastic and more, putting more plastic in landfill. And you know, at the same time, we're talking about Starbucks here, the, not the most environmentally friendly company. This is a company that builds single-story coffee shops on reclaimed wetland mini-malls. Um, you know, serving drive through So anyway, now Starbucks is seen as this like environmentally friendly organization for doing something that just put more waste into the waste stream. So yeah, uh, these things can absolutely backfire. All and right. I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of this 18-month timeline to ban plastics, we have a bunch of alternatives that have their own problems. All right, Tristan, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thanks so much to Tristan Hopper. Well, a new report on possibly funneled donations to the federal liberals has one group calling for a lower donation limit, lowering it to $100 to follow the lead in Quebec. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Duff Conacher, who is a co-founder of the group Democracy Watch. Dutch, th- uh, Duff, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, so what is this report? What did this report uh, reveal to you? Well, uh, what it revealed is almost $1.5 million in uh, possibly funneled donations to the Trudeau Liberals from 110 companies, interest groups, uh, law firms, accounting firms. And uh, it shows that the federal donation limit is too high and uh, facilitates possibly funneling. We, we have had confirmed funneling from SNC-Lavalin of donations through its executives under the current uh, donation system from 2004 to 2011. 
and likely many other companies, interest groups and others are, are doing it. And this report points the finger at that and shows the need both to lower the donation limit and also the need for an audit by Elections Canada to find out uh, whether these donations were funneled illegally and whether people should be prosecuted. Uh, in BC, uh, on, a, on a provincial level and certainly on a civic level as well, this has been looked at and there have been changes made as far as who can donate, how much uh, can be donated. Uh, is that something that you'd like to see adopted as well then uh, at a federal level? Uh, no, the BC donation limit is also too high. Any jurisdiction in Canada uh, that has banned corporate and union donations but left the donation limit of $1,000 or more has seen funneling happen. And BC's donation limit is $1,200. And, you know, you get 10 executives from a company and their spouses each giving in BC the $1,200, and boom, the the company has effectively given $24,000. That doesn't stop big money. It just obscures it because you have to now track it down, figure out all those executives and whether they're associated with that company. Maybe they have a common name like John Smith, so it's pretty difficult to figure out who they are. And then their spouses might have different last names as well. And so the only way to really stop the unethical, undemocratic influence of big money in politics is to actually stop big money donations. And that means lowering the donation limit down to $100, like Quebec did in 2013 after uh, a similar uh, donation scandal. Uh, Do you think people would then, though, try and find ways to get around it? Because as you point out, if you lower it, so at the $1,000 or the $1,200 mark, and then you you get people coming together and pushing the money up again, uh, is that at the $100 mark then, is that enough of a, of, uh, it makes it too difficult to do that, that that stops it? Well, you have to involve 10 times more people than when you have a $1,000 donation limit. So that's a lot of people involved in an illegal conspiracy. All you need is one of them to have a guilty conscience and and go to the regulators and blow the whistle. Secondly, Quebec actually goes even further. If you donate more than $50 uh, in Quebec, you have to send it to Elections Quebec, and they verify it's your money before they send it on to the party. And the reason they do that is so that someone can't walk in. Let's say SNC-Lavalin, they have 3,400 employees in Quebec, and one of their executives can't walk into a party office and say, Here's 3,400 checks from $100, $100 each. They're from our employees. They all want to support you and uh, essentially do the same kind of illegal funneling. And so that's how far Quebec has gone, and it's the world's leading system. And people in English Canada don't hear about it much because it's Quebec, and it's mostly covered in the French media. But it's the world's leading system, and uh, you're never going to stop bribery, but you're what Quebec has done is stopped the legalized bribery that the other political donation systems across Canada still allow, including at the federal level and in BC. And so at this point then, uh, you've, uh, there's been a petition or there's been the, this call put out or to see what, what people in Canada think about this. What kind of a reaction have you gotten from people uh, when you talk about lowering the limit? Well, more than 90,000 Canadians have called on federal political parties to make this change and parties across the country as well uh, through Democracy Watch's Money in Politics campaign. And we also have a coalition of more than 50 organizations representing 3.5 million Canadians that are calling for this change. And uh, the federal Liberals actually increased the donation limit in the recent bill that they put through uh, they also more than doubled the amount that uh, interest groups can spend on elect- during elections on advertising. And those are both moves in 
an undemocratic uh, system uh, and under democratic direction because most people can't afford not just the $1,600 that you can donate to each party at the federal level, but you can also donate another $1,600 annually to a party's riding associations. So that adds up to $3,200. How many people have $3,200 sitting around in the bank that they can send to a party? Not very many. And we've done an analysis. The Liberals, for example, uh, in donations above $1,000 in 2015, uh, only 4% of their donors were able to afford to make that uh, kind of donation. So are we going to have a donation system that benefits that top 4% of wealthy people who are buying influence with their donations from parties? Or are we going to have a donation system that's democratic and and has a donation limit like $100, which an average voter can afford? And the idea being that if you, uh, the more you donate, uh, what the better that you you get treated or you get some some well, type yeah. of kickback. Sure, the federal liberals do this explicitly. If you donate uh, fifteen hundred dollars or more, you get to be uh, a member of what they call their Laurier Club, and you get invited to special events where you get access to the prime minister and other cabinet ministers. So it is a cash for access system explicitly in the federal liberal party. You give more cash, you get more access. And access allows you more influence because you're able to build a relationship with these people. So it's right there. It's, it's all admitted by the liberals. You give us more and we value you more and we'll give you more access. And that's not, an unde- a, democrat- that's not a democratic system. That's not an ethical system. And then Quebec has it right. And they eliminated the uh, donation limit that they had of $1,000 and lowered it down to 100 because they found all sorts of companies were funneling money through their executives and employees to the parties and easily, of course, letting the party know that, hey, 10 of our executives and their spouses and their kids just gave and we gave you a lot of money. And so when we call the minister, we want our call returned or we want our call taken and we want to get the meetings we want and we want to have the influence and have you do the things we want. And if you believe in the fundamental democratic principle of one person, one vote, which we uphold on election day, right? Only Each person only gets one vote. Then you should want that upheld all the time in the election system, because that's a democratic ethical system. It means no politician can be bought off and no person just because they have money can have more influence than any other voter. Um, you've also uh, reached out to uh, Elections Canada, to uh, the chief elector, officer and uh, asked about audits and such. What have you found out as far as audits that have been done or trying to uncover if there is some wrongdoing? Well, Elections Canada promised to do an audit in 2013 to find out whether there was funneling going on. And uh, they haven't done it. And they, I don't know what they're waiting for. Uh, Elections Quebec, uh, the corporate and union donations were banned in Quebec in the late 70s, and Elections Quebec didn't do an audit until 2011. And when they did, they found $12.8 million of likely illegally funded funneled donations over a five-year period. And Elections Canada now, uh, corporate and union donations were banned in Canada in 2007, and here we are 12 years later, and they haven't done the audit to determine how much illegal funneling is going on. So we wrote to them a month ago and also uh, to the lobbying commissioner because this is all tied in with lobbying and trying to influence uh, parties and and politicians. And we asked them to work together and and do an audit looking right back to 2007 and find for all the parties uh, what the extent of funneling has been and uh, track down any 
decision making that might have resulted from huge donations still flowing in through the executives and employees of big businesses, unions, and other organizations. And uh, we're still waiting back to hear from Elections Canada. The lobbying commissioner has done her usual, uh, which she's done over the last 10 years. Whenever she sees a situation that should be investigated, she turns away and drops the investigation. Uh, And so we're relying on Elections Canada and the commissioner, and hopefully they will do their jobs properly and do this audit. Uh, you've also called on, or you'd like to see Parliament to bring in a bill soon to lower the donation limit. I, it's highly unlikely, I'm thinking, that that's going to happen. So what do you do next uh, in this fight? Well, hope that some of the political parties actually promise this election to make our system finally democratic and ethical. And uh, if people want to get a government that uh, will actually address their concerns... They should be looking to the parties that are saying we're going to stop the ability of people with wealth uh, and wealthy interest groups from influencing our elections and and having undue influence over our politicians through big donations. So we'll see what they do. It's actually still not too late. There's absolutely no reason why a simple one-page bill couldn't go through Parliament very quickly, lowering the donation limit, lowering the amount that wealthy interest groups can spend on ads during elections, and strengthening enforcement and penalties. It still could be done if uh, the federal liberals actually want to make the election fair and democratic by getting rid of big money in this next federal election. All right, so we will have to leave it there. We're out of time, but uh, Duff Conacher, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, and people can see much more at democracywatch.ca.